When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits. Perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour. Presented by Capital One. Ooh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and ten times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie, reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 63 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Digital Federal Credit Union, better known by all of us as just DCU. And whether you're driving off the lot or you're refinancing, DCU can help you save on your next auto loan with rates as low as 1.49% APR. Now is the perfect time to upgrade your ride before winter. And DCU can help you save. You heard me. Rates as low as 1.49% APR. You can learn more at dcu.org auto. Insured by the NCUA, membership required. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by Jumptown Skydiving. If you have always wanted to jump out of a plane just one time and get that off your bucket list, you may as well do it at America's oldest skydiving drop zone. Jumptown is conveniently located right off of Route 2 in Orange, Massachusetts, and they're open seven days a week. But Jumptown also understands that service industry employees can't always make plans with all of their friends on the weekends. That's why they offer service industry discounts on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. Discounted tandem jumps as low as $185. So why not put a group together from work and head out to Jumptown to make a skydive? If you organize the group, you get $10 off of your jump for every person you bring. Bring 10 people and your skydive is free. Climb up to 13,500 feet in the air and jump out of that plane. Log on to jumptown.com for the details or to make your reservation, call 978-544-5321. Okay, episode 63 of the Mistress Carrie podcast checks off something off of my bucket list. Nancy Wilson from Heart, in my opinion, is part of the Mount Rushmore of women in rock. Her and her sister Anne together broke boundaries and kicked the door open for women in rock and roll with their band Heart. Sure, there have been many influential women in rock, going back to the blues in the 40s, and Janice, and Joan Jett, and Stevie Nicks, and Pat Benatar, and so on. But Anne and Nancy Wilson were always different. Nancy also had to earn the respect of being a guitar player, and she has. Nancy just released her first ever solo album, which is called You and Me. She's collaborating with the Seattle Symphony Orchestra. She's continuing her career working in film and television scoring. And there's even rumors, which she talks about in this episode, of a movie based on her and her sister's lives and the band. Nancy and I talked about her and Anne's upbringing, their love of music, starting hard, learning how to play the guitar, influences, songwriting, the role of women in music and how that's changed and evolved, and so much more. Every once in a while, you're going to hear a little technical issue. We never really solved what was going on with her internet connection. But getting a chance to spend this much one-on-one time with Nancy Wilson was a dream come true, and she was everything that I thought she would be. She was generous, forthcoming, open. She has a great sense of humor. And above all else, she's a motherfucking rock and roll badass. So allow me to introduce you to Nancy Wilson from Heart.
Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I can't believe I'm talking to Nancy Wilson. Oh, oh. my God. Welcome to the show, Nancy Wilson. Hey, wow. I'm glad to be here, especially now with that introduction. Oh, <laughs> holy shit. Being a woman in rock and roll for for me almost 30 years there is a list of women that have been on my bucket list to interview and i am making a giant check mark today with you thank you for coming on the show just cross that one right off i'm crossing you off although that doesn't mean you can never come back (laughs) right right well really happy to be here it's a good show too and i I love your background background welcome to mchq this is my own personal studio now much like much like you during the lockdown i had to get creative to continue my career and you 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 got your solo album you and me and i got mchq all right. Well, it's all good. It looks really cool, and what you're wearing is really cool too. So, well, it's summertime. You gotta, you gotta just put the tank on and just let the girls breathe. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I know what you mean. Yep. Um, there's so many things that I want to talk to you about, but I, I guess we should start at the beginning. You are a rock and roll Hall of Fame inductee with the band Heart with your sister Ann Wilson. You are legends in rock and roll. And you are one of many plaques on the wall that Seattle kind of gets to brag about with all the amazing music that comes out of there. Oh, Seattle, I love Seattle. I miss Seattle a lot. But I have, you know, family and friends, my family used to all be there, but still some family there and a bunch of, you know, cool um, buddies still that live there, so. Mainly my band that played on, you know, with Heart on the last big Heart tour and on my solo album, all live in Seattle too. So, yeah, we're going to do a show there pretty soon. So um, it'll be really a homecoming for sure. You grow up in a city that now is so synonymous with music, obviously, between Heart and Hendrix and uh, grunge. People think immediately Seattle. When you and Anne were... Growing up, what were you guys listening to? Well, we were, our family was really musical. We always had a good sound system and a reel-to-reel, you know, tape recorder. That we, our parents were um, kind of audiophiles, and they recorded onto tape a bunch of the albums that they played, so that so that they'd be protected. They still have a you know extra copy of backup if record ever got scratched. So. Uh, we had Ray Charles, we had Aretha, who's also from Seattle. We had Aretha Franklin, Judy Garland, Barbara Streisand, classical, not too much jazz really, but a lot of blues. Um, and, you know, we just, we were steeped in all kinds of killer stuff, you know, even like big bombastic um, classical stuff and, you know, famous composers and, a lot, of, a lot of singing along going on in the house. It comes up a lot on the podcast that you get exposed to music by older siblings, parents, cool aunts and uncles. Then there's a time when you decide this is now my music and there's the seminal album or artist that kind of you gravitate to and say, this is mine now. 
What was that music for you? Well, it absolutely was the Beatles. I mean, we saw them when they kind of descended on the planet on the, you know, in 62, I think it was on the, on the Ed Sullivan show. And it was like a lunar landing was happening. You know, it was, it was like, it was like the lunar landing. It, it was, um, nobody was not watching. It was, it was a, you know, an appointment television. It was a, an appointment um, concert and they changed the face of everything, the face of culture and music. So um, we had to have guitars immediately. We wanted to be them, you know, not marry them, but be, be the Beatles. And so we made, you know, we made, we pleaded for guitars and we got guitars and we made bands with girls from the choir that we could sing with. And, you know, we just started immediately um, learning the craft so that we could be be, be the Beatles <laughs> and learn every Beatles song, every top 40 song from the radio, basically, and started playing out in, you know, schools and churches and uh, even a drive-in theater at one point. Um, we just had to be in a band. We had to make bands, and they all had really kind of bad names like the Rapunzel, you know, or the Viewpoints or um, the Mode. Well, that wasn't was not so bad, but the mode was kind of a cool name. But then there was Depeche Mode later. The Electric Prunes was one of our <laughs> one of our band names. That would have so, been unfortunate, <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, you know, when you're really a kid. I mean, I was nine when I played guitar. I started playing guitar, so it was really kind of a you know an in group joke. Everything was always an in group joke with us. <laughs> It's a huge, important distinction, what you just said, that you didn't want to be with the Beatles, like the throngs of screaming girls around the world. You and Anne wanted to be the Beatles. What was it about your upbringing that created that distinction? Because at that time, a girl rock and roll group, not the 50s doo-wop singers and that kind of stuff, but... The concept of a girl rock and roll group, that's not exactly the obvious answer. Where did that gumption come from? I think because we were starting young enough before we had like a sexual identity or constraints, you know, around our thinking about it that we, and we had so much music in our history of our family and singing along, all kinds of sing-alongs and harmony singing and old pub songs and ukuleles and you know beach fires and singing harmonies and so we we knew we had you know the skill set to be able to take it further so it wasn't a big you know leap from just being in a musical family to making music in a band and you know and girls were kind of easier to kind of hang out with so we just brought girlfriends from the choir in and we were always a foursome like the Beatles, we got to go see the Beatles um, at the Seattle uh, Center uh, in 1966 when they came through there, and um, we we arrived at the show in our costumes that were matching Beatle costumes to the Beatles' actual. This is the greatest story ever, Nancy. Greatest story yeah. ever. Except we, our mom made the you know outfits for us. Except we had skirts instead of slacks you know and we had our, um kind of our beetle boots and nylons and the, the mandarin jackets with the military buttons and the high collars you know and so we had our um we didn't scream we made not one sound everyone else of course it was pandemonium and you could kind of hear the beatles play but um we were we were, we were just like taking notes you know through the, our opera glasses, you know, our binoculars, just like studying, studying. Um, this was the master class, you know. We were studying everything they were doing and taking dictation. <laughs> I got to see Paul McCartney. Obviously, I never got to saw, see the Beatles, but I got to see Paul McCartney as the halftime show performer at the Super Bowl some years back. And I just remember sitting there going, I'm watching a fucking Beatle. Like, yeah, right. 
Did you ever get a chance in all your travels and all the time that you've been successful as a musician to actually talk to to any of the Beatles as a peer? Sort of. I got to talk to Paul about three different times uh, before his couple of shows that I went to see. One was with Wings, and then it was his his newer band, um, the Paul McCartney Show, I guess. And, uh, you know, he's exactly the guy you want him to be he's he's really uh you know generous and sweet and you know he's there's no pretense with paul mccartney he's just a good person and he's kind of you know up he's an upbeat guy and you know for all the stuff he's had to live through that's pretty impressive to me because you know losing john losing linda all along the way and continuing to just you know, push forward with all his his optimism and his beautiful talent. And the new album he just did was really cool too. I mean, he's really, and and then we just saw this incredible documentary with Rick Rubin called- Isn't it amazing? I loved it. It's like a million, million, trillion thrills. And, you know, even if you don't know the Beatles very well, it's, again, it's another masterclass, you know, in- melody and structure, songwriting, you know, writing it, singing it, playing it, all the stuff he does so well. He's, he's, just, he's a master. You know what I took from that more than anything? Because my mother gave me the gift of not only my love of music, but my love of the Beatles. And that was the soundtrack in my house. So hearing you talk oh. about loving the Beatles, I'm the same way. And what struck me the most out of that Rick Rubin miniseries was when they broke down the flavors that John Lennon and Paul McCartney brought to the songwriting about how Paul McCartney was more positive, whereas John Lennon was more cynical and tied it to their upbringing and how their family structure was. It blew my mind and changed everything for me. (laughs) You know, and as a songwriting team, that was one of the, the things Paul talks about quite frequently in his interviews where John's kind of cynicism would sort of temper and balance out his gung-ho sort of positive melodic thing, you know, that he was so good at. And so John would kind of, you know, put the darkness into the lightness and create, you know, the art, (laughs) darkness and light. I just never tied it to their family structure and upbringing. And so that was so enlightening for me that, that, it would have that much influence on your art in that way. Yeah, I mean, certainly his, John Lennon's father was a real ne'er-do-well. We called him ignoble Alf, Alfred. And uh, he was always missing and kind of a, a cad of a sailor guy. And so, you know, John had a lot of pain and both John and Paul had lost their moms. Their moms at a, in their young sort of teenage era of their lives so they had a lot to connect to, but I think with Paul, you know, his his family much more, uh, you know, happy-go-lucky and musical and you know supportive. And John was more of a lonely kid with a, with a chip on his shoulder. So that you know that really rounded out their the equation of the two of them as artists. You talk about the musical family that you and Anne grew up in. And recently I had a chance to talk to Dean DeLeo from Stone Temple Pilots. And I was kind of joking on myself that I chose poorly growing up on the instrument that I learned because I grew up (laughs) playing the clarinet, which is not exactly the smartest choice when you're a rock fan. And I know your sister plays the flute, which isn't other than Jethro Tull, a real rock and roll instrument. (laughs) Well, you know, she tried to pull, uh, learn trumpet in school at first in band. And somebody, I think the instructor said, you know, that's not a girl's instrument. You should play the flute because that's a girl's instrument. And, you know, she, uh, she'd also chipped her tooth on the, on the trumpet because our sister Lynn was pulling at it, trying to like get it away from her, probably because it was noisy or something. And, and, it's, you know, she let go and it chipped her tooth. So she t- then she got the tooth fixed and she picked up the flute. 
I tried to pick up the flute and I tried some clarinet for a while too. And, you know, getting the, the embouchure thing down was really difficult for me. But um, I love the sound of clarinets and, you know, obviously so does Paul McCartney. So there's a place for clarinet, you know. Yeah, it's just it's just so much cooler to play guitar, Nancy. Yes, well, <laughs> yeah, you can't really slouch with a clarinet correctly, you know. Like it has to be slouchy with a rock rock and roll kind of instrument like the guitar. You have to sling it low and slouch with it. Do you still have the first guitar that you ever played? No, it was such a piece of rubbish. I mean, I got rid of it. I gave it away or something. I should have burned it because it was unplayable. Um, there was no barring an F chord, you know, you could ever manage to do on that guitar. The bridge was not fixed down, so you, it was going out of tune all the time. So I'd move the bridge a little just to kind of try to keep it more in tune as I played it. But I learned how to get strong on that guitar because it was so terribly, it was like a piece of plywood with a, you know, <laughs> with a pipe for a neck. <laughs> but um, then I got a good one. <laughs> Did you take formal lessons? I'm, I'm really curious are you a, a a musical note reader? Do you learn from ear? Do you play from feel? Where did it come from? Well, there were some piano lessons um, along the way. because Her mom was a great pianist. Um, and so we got some basic sort of reading experience like that. But when I picked up the guitar, it was only by ear from there out. Because there's a couple of chords from the Mel Bay chord book, you know, and you're off and running. And I could just pick stuff out by ear. And, um, you know, I couldn't be bothered to stop and to remember how to read music. Even though I've done score music for film and all that kind of stuff, I just go by ear. And then, I mean, I can hear stuff in my head and then I can put it onto tape, you know, or into, um, you know, into a recording. And it, it's just, I think, something when I went to, college for a little while and I went to study music theory um the reading part was the hardest part for me but the um the students of of the music theory class a lot of those were really you know accomplished pianists play piano players that had been trained and read really beautifully like reading music but they said how do you just play without a piece of music in front of you like how do you do that it was like they didn't understand that you can play without reading the music. So it was a really interesting. I could have written a thesis about it, really, because you know when you're dependent when you're dependent on reading a piece of music and you, and you can't improvise or um, play by ear or just you know pick out a melody for even like you know row 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 your boat without reading it, you know. It's, inter it's an interesting dilemma in music theory where people can't sort of have it both ways, you know. Do you remember either the first song that you ever wrote on the guitar or the first song you ever learned? Do you remember what it was? Um, I think it was, I think it was a, it was probably a Beatles song for sure because I, you know, picking up the, the the chord for anything that we could remotely call it. Like this sounds familiar. This must be that Beatles song. Um, yeah, specific song. I I don't remember. It was we learned a whole bunch of songs all at once. So we you know we had to learn the association stuff. We had to learn you know everything on the radio. You know the Turtles and the Doors and the Beatles and the um, Moody Blues and just everything so we could just sit around and play songs with our friends and just be like jukeboxes all day long what about when you change from the acoustic guitar and get your hands on an electric guitar for the first time somebody gave me an electric guitar that they'd made out of parts when i was just still a really new player and we had a little amp and played a little bit of bass as well. So and we did a lot of recording, sort of com comedy recordings, um, you know, like 
joking around with songs like Scotch and Soda. And so I would play like a, a mock, you know, electric jazz solo on the electric and put some, you know, echo on there. And um, so we were just like goofing around all the time with electric and acoustic and um, some flute parts, you know, and um, I started learning blues harp, you know, some uh, harmonica bluesy stuff. And we just had a blast with that reel-to-reel tape recorder. It was just a two-track, but we used to bounce stuff over onto one, you know, so we could have like basically four tracks to play around with. And we'd speed it up, you know, twice as fast and record it that way, slow it back down to norm. It would sound like munchkins. You know, we had all, all that stuff going on. It was pretty great. And I still have backups of all the comedy music that we did. Um, on disc and on hard drive because it's like it's classic and it's priceless it's still pretty funny today (laughs) (laughs) um when you i've read some science on musical ability and there's a theory that it is the same part of the brain that has proficiency for mathematics and language does that describe you accurately um, well, I'm not very good at math. <laughs> I learned one language pretty well, which was German in high school and college, um, because the Beatles sang in German, you know, of course, that's why. Um, but I mean, mathematically, I understand where uh, the structure of music is in, in, inside the, the accents of the bar, you know, the the structure inside a song is very mathematical when you when you want to like count to four count to eight you know put accents into those bar structures and so it's it is more like a, a physically uh it's a physically palpable kind of mathematics that your body feels because it's rhythm and um you know if you got rhythm you got math <laughs> a lot of guitar players, once they go from maybe learning acoustic a little bit, and then they get their hands on the heavy metal, on the electric guitar. <laughs> the acoustic kind of becomes a hobby thing that they do at home when they're working out song ideas. But you, right. unlike a lot of guitar players, continued to keep the acoustic as part of your sound. Can you talk to me about the two different flavors of the acoustic versus the electric? Yeah, you know, the, the electric is it's like a different instrument to me. I mean, um, it's a whole different feel, and it's, you know, you can bend way more, and you can do a lot of different things that the acoustic doesn't really allow you to do. Um, but but the acoustic, in, in my book, the acoustic is kind of um, like a rhythm instrument. It's like a percussion instrument. Because I play it kind of aggressively. I don't play it like a little folk chick, you know, would play <laughs> a folky guitar player. That beatnik, you know, acoustic. Yeah. 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 I'm a little more, I approach it a little more with a rock sensibility and a, definitely um, a percussion instrument in my, in my way of playing. Um, and then, but I think it can be so expressive that way because you can, you have a lot of leeway for, um, you know, dynamics on it. You can go really, you beat on it, and then you can let it ring. And so you can, you can really speak with acoustic in a different way than you can with electric. Electrics are really powerful. There's just nothing like playing something like Barracuda on a big stage, you know, because it's just like screams, you know, and it's larger than life, and it's, um, you kind of get, I get a real, you know, sense of being a burly person when I'm playing a big electric guitar. I feel so burly, you know, and I, I feel like Rosie the Riveter kind of, you know, like muscular. And, um, and well, a lot so- of jokes have been made because when you see guys doing guitar solos, it's like they're <laughs> out there like wielding a giant penis, which is just not what you can do. <laughs> well, you know, I've, I've, I have a couple of good stage moves, and one of them is the squat, where I, you know, put the guitar in between my legs and squatting down, and like aiming it at the at the crowd. 
Um, because I think it's kind of a, it is a phallic symbol and it's a sexy thing, you know, and it's okay for a girl to, you know, I wouldn't do the thing where like some guys pretend it's a machine gun. I would never do that. You know, but, but I would kind of, um, I, I dance with the electric a lot and it's very, uh, it's just really satisfying. You know, it's so powerful. You feel like you can, uh, you can sort of conquer the day. <laughs> the road of rock and roll is paved with horror stories of brothers. I mean, there's so many stories of brothers that get into bands and then they get into fights and they break up and so Christmas is ruined. There are not a lot of stories about obviously sisters in really, rock and roll, really careful which with. is one of the things that um, makes heart because so it's amazing. been a lot of decades but was and there ever been a some fear falling out at one some, point that you some, guys were just going to you know, destroy some the family challenges and trying to be a co-leader of a big metal horse like a band like Heart. You know, we can disagree. We have to agree to disagree at times and hear each other out and have a conversation about what it is. You know, I want this, but I, you don't want that. And I want what I want and you, but you don't want what I want. So it's, um, it's always a dance, you know, that you do, but with a couple of decent skills of, of knowing how to communicate with somebody you don't agree with which I think women are much more apt to do well, <laughs> then, then you're more likely to succeed, you know, in continuing to survive through the, the, the ups and the downs and the, the, you know, the darks and the lights and the struggle, the power struggle of that. And, um, you know, like there's just some big issues that you have to face and figure out and compromise with. So I think any communi any communication challenge with humans in general really just, just requires a lot of, of compromise and wisdom. <laughs> I've asked this question of a lot of male musicians. Is it harder to keep a band together or a marriage together? And I'm curious what your answer to that is. Uh, wow, that's a pretty great question. I think it's easier to keep a marriage together in many ways um, than a band. Though marriages can you know, be problematic too. Depends on the marriage, it depends on the band. But in our case, you know, our band has had a lot of different lineups along the way. Me and Anne are the one constant, you know, so far, so far so good. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I think there's a lot of ego stuff and there's a lot of when you're exhausted and you're touring all the time and get in each other's, you're living in each other's pockets basically, and you can, things can start bugging you, you know, <laughs> and then it gets kind of political and then, and then you kind of shape shift it all over again and try it again different ways. I read that article, the interview that you gave about back in the day when you and your sister were there with the Van Halen brothers and it was this weird thing backstage. And all that came to my mind is, oh my God, if the Wilson sisters and the Van Halen brothers ended up together, that's like the Ghostbusters crossing of the streams moment. You guys would have had these mutant rock and roll kids that would have taken over the world. Oh my God. That's really terrible. Um, well, you know, Valerie was in the picture at the time. He was so sweet, though. He was really a great person. Those guys were all just, you know, just on fire with the partying and stuff. We were, we were the ones that were kind of like, wow, you know, the, what is that you're drinking here in this bar? And it's like, this is called a kamikaze. Why don't you try one? So <laughs> we had our first kamikazes, you know, with the brothers and those guys. And um, it was really uh, quite a time, you know. They were they were up up all night, quite frequently. Gotta say, <laughs> the idea that you could—I I mean, everybody talks about Eddie Van Halen, especially suffering his loss almost a year ago now, and they they talk about you know what the world was like before Eddie Van Halen. And then obviously after Eddie Van Halen, you were playing the guitar. So 
when you get exposed to Eddie Van Halen doing something so differently, what was going through your mind when you saw him play for the first time? Oh, my God. I mean, same thing everybody was experiencing when they saw him play. It was such, it, it was otherworldly. It was un- unbelievable. It was, you know, nothing like it had ever happened before in the world of rock and roll and or since. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of guitar players were just like, okay, I quit. And I'm going to quit, you know, because it's just like unbelievably. One of the things about Eddie's playing that was so different, too, was that not just his, you know, hammering on and all the stuff he invented, but the the fact that he played always in a, such a major, not minor, but a major key, not a bluesy kind of solo key, but soloing in major keys. So, and chord progressions that were major chord progressions. And that set him apart from a lot of the bluesier, you know, uh, type players that a lot of rock comes from the blues. And I think he, he was fresh, it was a fresher sound as well because he was also in a major key most of the time. And um, so when I tried to write this, you know, dedicate this song for Edward, for him, for this, from the solo album, um, I, I realized when I watched a bunch of his stuff that this is all pretty major stuff, major key stuff. And so I, I, that was my, my first clue how to start, you know, cause I, I couldn't figure out how to even start for a long time. I was, I'd painted myself into the worst corner by saying I was going to dedicate a instrumental piece to Eddie Van Halen. And then I actually had to do it, which was not, not Talk an about easy setting yourself up, Nancy. Yeah, right? I know. I, I do enjoy challenges. This was a biggie. <laughs> I've, I've been very fortunate to interview a lot of guitar players over the years. And shortly after we lost Eddie Van Halen, I talked to Nuno Betancourt. And we had a really in-depth conversation about where guitar tone comes from. And he told me a story about how he got invited to a Van Halen rehearsal and Eddie invited him to play his guitar on his rig with all of his pedals. And Nuno was so disappointed that even though he was playing through Eddie's stuff that he still sounded like Nuno. And so I want to ask you, because you have a very specific and recognizable guitar tone and I'm curious, is it something that you try to formulate or is it something that just comes out of your style of playing? Well, I, 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 that's a really amazing story. Um, Nuno is such a good friend. Love that, Nuno. Um, but, yeah, we've done some stuff together too. But he, he's kind of right. I mean, it's really the true thing that if you, if you, if you play – with your own style, that's not going to be the same as some, it's going to sound different from somebody else's playing. It's all in the expression of how you play. And, um, you know, there's a lot of players you can tell who they are because of their style, stylistic imprint on the guitar. And, you know, like, like David Gilmore is one of my all time muses in that way, because, you know, his, you know his figures and his shapes that he's gonna, and his melodic content, that the way he plays, he's he's just his own player, and nobody else is gonna sound like David Gilmore. So, it's kind of a cool thing about guitar players. They have their way of playing. When you can distinguish one person among many, that's a, that's a good player, I think. Well, you said it recently when you were talking about your sister's voice that it's it's kind of the same thing. Someone's style and guitar tone is as specific as a vocalist. And, and people could try to sound like Anne, but they're just not going to. Yeah, it's sort of a fingerprint thing. You know, it's very, um, even with a singer, more, of course, more so because of the, the, the specific, particular, um, granular thing about the singer's voice. You know, the, the grain of the voice itself is just skin. It's that person's skin. And their, their, you know, the vowels and the way they say the words and how they speak the lyrics or don't, you know, don't exactly sing every note or they speak the note, speak sometimes. Um, 
Chief gave me a really good piece of advice as a singer once that I've taken really um, to heart. <laughs> no, no pun intended. <laughs> um, but she said one time she could tell I was kind of struggling with a singing part in the studio. She said, don't try to be perfect. Just tell the story. And I, when I was singing on my new album, because I was singing everything, basically, um, I really thought about that again. And it was really helpful to me to just be a storyteller in the context of these songs, the new ones and the, and the covers, you know. Well, rock and roll, I think, is a very distinctive thing where it's almost an art form of imperfections, that it's the, yeah. it's the imperfections that are what make it so special. Especially these days when so much music has been for so long now has been kind of per- perfected and you know auto-tuned and digitized and out of uh, recognition. Recognition, in many cases, is they don't know who even who the singer is. You know. So when you're working on this solo album, you and me. There's some songs on there that are original, like For Edward, that are in tribute to Eddie Van Halen. But then you decided to tackle some very famous songs by other artists. And you bring your own vocal styling and your own guitar tone into it. But when you're going to cover a song that's already famous in its own right, like, say, Pearl Jam Daughter, what are you thinking about when you're saying, I'm going to make that song my own somehow? How do you how do you go into that process? Well, in a case of a song like Daughter, it's interesting to, you know, sometimes when you change the gender, it really takes a new turn and it makes a new statement altogether. And it's a perspective that you hadn't thought of about that, a song like that before. Um, also, that was written, I, I recorded that one for specifically for a film before I even started my album um, called I Am All Girls, which is a, a true story um, about... Uh, human trafficking, a, a real true story with a, it's a great film. It's, it's on Netflix right now. It's called I Am All Girls and that's what the song's in. But, um, because it, it talks about one of the lines was it, uh, she holds the hand that holds her down. And it was quite, you know, perfect for the, the subject of the film. But, um, yeah, with a, and with the with the, the dream song, the cranberry song, you know, I thought, oh, this is perfect for Liv Warfield to come and do a duet with me, because it's got harmony all the way through. I just happened to hear it on the radio kind of recently. It was like, wow, what a perfect new way to do that with Liv, you know, like in a new sort of frame, a whole new frame for a song like that. Not quite so Irish. And there was like the yodeling part of the you know, in the section of the song where she goes, ah, you know, whatever. And, and Liv is so funny. She goes, do we have to do the yodel part? Do we have to yodel? And I was like, no, we don't have to yodel. I'll put a mandolin in there. So don't worry. We're not yodeling on this song. But, um, <laughs> you know, and then the rising was the first thing I really wanted to try to cover because it was, I'd seen Springsteen on Broadway and it was so, amazing to see songs like that and other songs that I I knew these songs from the radio times but in in the stripped down way that he was doing them on Broadway um they were so significantly more heavy and the lyric content of the songs were so deep so much deeper without all the production around so I figured you know because of the pandemic I would try to cover something really aspirational that would help people through this this horrific thing that we were all going through and all the fear and all the loss and everything. And it's got a real biblical, you know, uh, it's got a biblical structure to it that kind of, I think, could be helpful to people going through what we've all been going through for a year and a half and apparently still are going through for Hopefully not much longer. <laughs> um, there's also a song on the album dedicated to Lane Staley and your relationship and, and connection to the Seattle music scene. I mean, when you think about, especially of that era of Seattle music, Lane Staley and Alice in Chains and that 
voice is like the sound of the city. Oh, it's really the sound of Seattle. There's a rock and roll accent that came out of the 90s, like Lane Staley's voice and Eddie Vedder's voice and Chris Cornell's voice and a lot of those guys. Um, they, are, they had a specific Seattle accent going on. When I was working on the almost famous film, um, working on Stillwater songs, the musicians brought them in the movie Stillwater, um, the last thing I needed to find was the singer. And so I tried out a few Seattle singers, but they all, they all had the rock and roll Seattle accent, and it, it, was, it was long for the era film was set to, right? It was, it was like a late 70s film. So the era of those, that style of singing was more like um, what Chris Robinson would sound like, a different accent altogether. And so I found a guy, um, Marty Fredrickson, who was like one of those, those kind of exact type of singers with that exact kind of an accent from that exact era of music. It was really an interesting lesson you know, to come around to figuring that out, because stylistically, you can mark an era by the rock and roll accent of the time. The fact that they're celebrating such a huge anniversary for that film now, albeit a little late because of COVID or whatever, but that they're going to be re-releasing this director's cut. I've seen some of the extra minutes of the film, including the Stairway to Heaven scene in the living room. That got cut out, and I'm watching it going, why did they cut this out? It was amazing. It was really funny. It was so funny. I think they um, it was an, they they left it in as an extra, like an Easter egg extra thing, but you would have to start the song um, at, the, at the top of the scene to be able to see it at home without having to pay for it in the film, which was you know, a million dollars, you know, to pay Led Zeppelin for that song. And it would be worse. It would be higher now today. I'm sure. But, you know, anyway, but it was, it was such a funny scene. I'm glad that it, it wound up in the redo. That song is so synonymous with you now and with your sister and the band because of the tribute at the Kennedy Center Honors. And, they announced just this week that they're going to have a Kennedy Center Honors coming up in December. They're bringing it back. And that version, how many times has the video from your performance gone around the internet? It seems like every six months it gets discovered all over again and it just <laughs> passes around the internet all over again. It's it's such an amazing version were you afraid that you guys were going to screw that up oh yeah of course i mean it's like yeah no pressure you know just the president the first lady bunch of dignitaries and that's Zeppelin. <laughs> we uh we had one rehearsal because we were on the road elsewhere we flew in the night before the show and had one rehearsal um the night before the show and then it was um, really cold in D.C. and my hands were frozen when we did the rehearsal. And so I, I kind of messed it up a little bit and because um, it was just me starting the whole song alone. So um, the guys in the band were like, well, we can shadow you, we can shadow you, don't worry. We'll play along with the shadow behind me. So I will have my hands warmed up on tomorrow and I will play it and I'll be fine and I know the song so don't worry no shadows necessary and it but it was pretty nerve-wracking to like take a really deep breath me and Anne walked out there just like, took a deep breath looking at each other and I just was you know focus focus fucking focus <laughs> <laughs> um don't and don't don't rush you know just be just be deliberate and focus, know how it goes, and here we go. And here, three, two, one, go. You know, and um, it worked. Yeah, it obviously worked. 
something else that's coming up later this year, and there's always debate, and, you know, everybody argues, are they worthy of getting in or not? It's a rock and roll hall of fame. Why are they putting rappers in there? What did, what did it mean to you to get inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame by Chris Cornell? You know, that was just so extremely, bizarrely, insanely cool. I mean, he's been around our, you know, our city um, and our, our, but he's one of, you know, among the, the cool dudes of the Seattle scene and the Seattle explosion and one of the best singers on the planet ever, kind of like a, a, a male version of the Ann Wilson of it all. But he was always kind of aloof, I thought, you know, when we would be hanging out places together, he was always kind of withdrawn and i thought maybe he was kind of i don't know like a a cool cat and just kind of not engaging or you know kind of maybe his nose was in the air a little bit and when he um wrote that beautiful introduction into the you know in induction speech um and like before we'd even uh done that before he even did that we we did an interview with him and he was such a fan. He was, he was admitting that he, he was such a fan of us that he could barely talk to us around Seattle. And so it kind of made me love him even more because he was nervous about saying hi. And then he was inducting us with that incredible, you know, induction speech that was just gorgeously crafted speech. Um, I've seen it again a couple of times since, and it really brings tears to my eyes, especially after he, you know, departed us, which was really unnecessary and terrible. <laughs> yeah. It, it, there's such a focus on so much of, of that because we've lost, you know, Kurt Cobain and Lane Staley and that um, sound is just so associated with the city and, when you talk about grunge, like I, I was ashamed to find out that there was a woman named Tina Bell that kind of helped inspire the whole genre. And I had never heard of her before. Did uh, you, did you meet her? Did you know her? Is there anything you can tell me about her? Not really. I, I, we were so, you know, off touring all the time and, when we got to be home in Seattle, we were hanging with the guys more than anybody else. We met Mia Zapata, but then she was murdered. And, um, you know, Sleater Kinney were always big favorites. And, you know, some of the, the girl bands, the rocker girls that were around at the time were really cool stuff. Sleater Kinney's doing great stuff now. Um, and they're playing out too. Um, Carrie Brownstein, who did Portlandia, of course, is has written a script for a heart film um, that's really good and we're putting it together they're casting right now so that looks like a film that's gonna happen that it's seems ha like the hardest question who's gonna play you like how do you pick somebody uh, to play you in a movie right i know well you know somebody that knows at least how to play guitar and with with some uh, vocal you know, ability that can, at least in a scene where you can warm up in a studio or so you can kind of make it believable. So there's that. Um, but I don't think that a real voice, I mean, you can you probably have to do something like they did with Bohemian Rhapsody, where you use live versions and altered sounding versions of live songs that you could then animate, you know, with the actors and then have the occasional real vocal, you know, in the and behind the scenes kind of a situation where it kind of threads it together and makes it more believable. Yeah, and but Rami Malik didn't have Freddie Mercury looking over his shoulder. You and Anne are going to be sitting there going, "Don't <laughs> screw this up, ladies." <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we won't. We don't have a big say per se in the way it all goes down. But I mean, I'm a. I love to be on a project like movie projects or studio work. I'm a studio dog. I'm, I like to be on a set, you know? And so, you know, I'll probably have, <laughs> have a few misgivings possibly along the way. It's like, 
that's not my mannerism. That's not my mannerism. You know, I don't know. <laughs> it would be fun, though. I, I have been dying to ask you this question. I ask every songwriter that comes on the show this question, and it's a question for songwriters. Can you give me an example of a song of any genre, of any era, that you give me as an example of fantastic songwriting to the point where you wish you wrote that song and why? Oh, God, there's so many songs I wish I'd written that it pains me that I didn't write. Um, you know, there are songs, songs of, some of the Joni Mitchell songs, like Big Zero, Songs of Sharon, those songs are incredibly crafted and written like nobody writes anymore. Um, it's beautiful music, beautiful poetry, and entwining. And um, Elton John, some of the Elton John songs, like My Father's Gun, and like Come Down in Time, you know, um, um, your song is one of them. It's just so gorgeous. Um, and so, you know, from the deeper part of your soul kind of stuff, uh, where words and, and music, you know, words and music um, take you to a whole other planet, you know. And you get, I used to lay in my bed with my headphones and listen to um, Tumbleweed Connection over and over and over <laughs> all night long and just be taken down that riverboat, you know, like the, my father's gun is that song. And um, just like escape is an escape from reality. And it takes you to the place you, you can't stop ever going forever. You know, you just have to go there. You have to live there. <laughs> well, speaking of the Kennedy center honors, jo Joni Mitchell's being honored this year. I know that. So great. She's really worthy, to say the least. Um, right now she's in talks with Cameron Crowe, you know, about another project, a film project. And um, it's very exciting. And she's having a lot of hootenannies, I guess, at her house with Brandy Carlisle and Elton John's showing up there. And they're they're all singing her songs and singing other their, their songs and her songs and, you know, just jamboree time at her house and so i guess she's really um fully you know fully back she's she has no you know uh dis disabilities after her last you know situation she goes i, I guess she said you know i'm built for destruction so <laughs> i'm, I'm back <laughs> Well, the Kennedy Centers gave you um, at least a little bit of a taste of working with an orchestra, and you have this big collaboration that has had to be postponed, but tell me about this live stream that you're doing with the Seattle Symphony Orchestra. Right. Um, on, um, on October 30th, we're going to – it pushed back about a little while, while because we were going to live stream it, but it was going to have to be distanced – and by the time it was going to be live streamed, it would look distanced after it didn't have to be distanced. So we thought, we thought let's, let's pack the house out. So, um, so we're going to probably do a run of West Coast shows heading up to the Seattle Symphony show. Um, and it's going to be some heart songs. I've got a, a singer to help me out. It was going to be Liv Warfield, but she got a different job. So, I've got a, I've picked out a Seattle singer um, that I've we're sort of trying her out right now. But um, so it'll be really cool. It'll be a lot of the new songs, a couple of really familiar heart songs, um, starting with just me doing for Edward on my own. The band comes out, we do some more songs, then a string quartet comes out, and then the full orchestra comes out for the ending. So it'll be really special. And then it'll be aired as well. So if you can't make the actual show, it'll be, you know, streamable uh, soon thereafter once it's edited and finished. Before I... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I just... It'll be really good, I think. Before I let you go, um, there seems to be this momentum in rock and roll and the term female-fronted, which was so synonymous with 
bands with women in them for decades. And now, just recently, it's being recognized for almost... I mean, I've even been guilty of using it just because it was the only descriptor out there. But from your perspective, as being one of those glass ceiling shattering women can you is is what's happening now in rock with all of the amazing rock and roll for coming from bands that just happen to have women in them now is this what you had always hoped rock and roll would get to yes i i was always hoping that more more girls would be be in more rock bands in the 80s because the mtv like changed every put everything on its ear for a long time because of all of the you know the corporateness of the music as it went through the 80s and the image making machinery in the 80s and the videos you know all of that stuff and the hair and the spandex and the corsets and you know the lacy gloves and all the stuff that was going on in the 80s was was unconducive for women to step forward with and be because it, it was a it was a judgmental time um, and you had to look apart look the part to be a woman in the 80s in the MTV 80s like when you look at um, what was the band of three girls uh, there were like three it was like two dances and an Anne there was two big huge blonde hair girls in a the drummer was a had huge black well, it's hair. Not Vixen that you're talking about. Yes, yes, it was Vixen, but they they had you couldn't just you couldn't tell like the girls from the boys because <laughs> they all had the same hair, you know, the same look, you know, the same lighting, the same um, posturing, you know. So I thought it just like actually put it a little bit on pause for women to actually feel confident and come forward. And now it's happening, and I'm I'm really happy to see that, you know, Phoebe Bridgers and just you know Amy, um, um, Amy Lee, yeah, Amy Lee, just so many of these really great, brave, strong writers, singer songwriters that are just emerging all of a sudden, and it's perfect. It's it's like it's about time, you guys, come on. Well, it's not just it's not just female musicians. I mean, you know, I, I've been working in rock radio now for this is my 30th year. And when you look at the artists that helped to make it possible for women like me or Amy Lee or anyone to be able to take be taken seriously in rock and roll, yeah. we're, we're standing on your shoulders, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to be able to interview you is because... You know, there's a whole generation of women coming up now that are looking at, you know, they're they're growing up looking at Hailstorm and Evanescence and the Pretty Reckless, that it's normal that the radio is flooded with bands that have women in them. But those bands had to grow up looking for their own inspiration and idols to be shown that it was possible. And the list of those artists is a lot shorter. And women yeah. like you and Anne and Joan Jett and Pat Benatar and Stevie Nicks, yeah. you were the women that made it possible for us to be where we are. Yeah, that's that's really well said. I I I think that's if there's anything, you know, um to feel good about, to feel proud about, like accomplish what, you know, like what what I may have accomplished by just being there at all. That's the best part because, you know, it's um the the culture changes very slowly in that kind of respect as far as how much women can be uh allowed you kind of encouraged or even allowed in a certain way to do to you know taken seriously and so um yeah it's just it's just a great feeling of accomplishment if i got to be part of that the new um influx of these amazing new women that are coming out right now. Well, it was an absolute honor and a pleasure to talk to you today, Nancy. Your album, You and Me, is available everywhere. I can't wait to see the stream with the with the symphony. 
just oh, the yeah. way you did, talked about it. And, and I just, I mean, I loved the Kennedy Center Honors performance so much that I can't wait to see you be able to do a whole performance with the quartet and the orchestra and other singers. I think it's just going to be really cool. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I really had a good time talking to you and thank you so much. And yeah, um, yeah, more to come, right? I, well, <laughs> the next time you're in town, I want to come and see you in person. But getting to yep. talk to you this way and have you on the show meant a lot. So thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Well, take care and, you know, keep rocking. <laughs> there she is, the one and only, the legendary Nancy Wilson from Heart. If you want to find Nancy online or find out more about the band Heart, just go to the show notes of this episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast. I put all of the links, the social media links, everything there. That's also where you're going to find the link for the corresponding playlist for this episode. Every full length and bonus episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast comes with a corresponding playlist so you can go back and listen to all the music that we talked about in this episode. Huge thanks once again to this episode's sponsors, Digital Federal Credit Union at dcu.org and Jumptown Skydiving at jumptown.com. Nancy Wilson's solo album, You and Me, is available right now, and I cannot wait to be able to go and see her perform live. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss anything from the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday, Plus, every weekday, you get the Situation Report. The Sit Rep gives you all of the rock news, music headlines, and industry info in less than five minutes every weekday. And you can join me every Tuesday night live on my Facebook page for Cocktails in the War Room. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.